0: They've already established connections with major governing bodies or agencies like the United Nation. They've fostered connections with tech billionaires like Elon Musk and so on. As a result, they're in a position to change the world in really significant, very non-trivial ways. And yet again, that theoretical foundation is just pretty weak. And I think that's a big problem.
1: Tech won't save us. I'm your host, Paris Marks. And this week, my guest is Emil Torres. Emil is a PhD candidate at Leibniz University in Hanover, Germany, and the author of the forthcoming book, Human Extinction, A History of the Science and Ethics of Annihilation. Now, you might remember Emil from our previous episode back in May, episode 116, called The Dangerous Ideology of the Tech Elite, where we talked about long-termism, This particularly concerning worldview held by a lot of people who are quite powerful in the tech industry that we really need to be focused on the very long term future of humanity and that comes often at the expense of taking actions that would address real material problems in the present. So instead of really going after climate change or trying to address human poverty and suffering and hunger, we should be focused on colonizing the cosmos so that we can extend the light of consciousness for millions and millions of years, for example. You may have also noticed that these ideas have been getting a lot more attention in the past few months because William McCaskill published a recent book called What We Owe the Future, and that has been very effectively sold and marketed around the world, or at least in Europe and North America, to the degree that many major publications have published articles and interviews with McCaskill effectively endorsing this idea that he is putting forward and that he is presenting in a very appropriate approachable manner in the book, you know, without some of the aspects of this ideology or of this worldview, that would really quickly turn people off and show people what it is at its core. And so as a result of that, I wanted to have Emil back on the program so that we could dig into long-termism a little bit more, so that we could talk about this promotion campaign that has been happening over the past number of months to get these ideas into people's minds, into people's heads, to get them more open to them. But also to talk about effective altruism more generally, this kind of idea that helps to justify the actions of these really rich people to accumulate a ton of wealth so that they can then deploy it in philanthropic ways to donate to various causes. And this makes it seem not so bad that the way they earn this money is incredibly terrible, often very harmful to society, to many people in our society. But that's okay because as long as they can then donate that money to causes that are supposedly doing good in the world, then we shouldn't be so concerned. Or at least they shouldn't be so concerned because they are not on the receiving end of the harms of how they make this money. So I think that this is a really important conversation. I think it's a good follow-up to the conversation that I previously had with Emil. And I think that you're really going to enjoy it. If you like the show, make sure to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also share the show on social media or with any friends or colleagues who you think would enjoy it. And if you want to support the work that goes into making the show and putting together these interviews on really critical tech topics, you can join supporters like Ian from Edinburgh and Kiara in Oakland by going to patreon.com slash Us and becoming a supporter. Thanks so much and enjoy this week's conversation. Emil, welcome back to Tech Won't Save Us.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here.
1: You know, I'm like conflicted, like I'm happy to have you back on the show, but I also hate the topic that we're talking about. And (laughs) I've read William McCaskill's new book. It's really this argument for this long-termist philosophy that we were talking about last time you were on the show. And so I wanted to have you back on because since we had that conversation, long-termism has really experienced, I think it's fair to say, this real kind of Increase in attention, right? It's kind of everywhere all of a sudden. There's a lot of arguments in favor of it. There's a lot of really positive pieces about it in the New York Times, in Time Magazine, in a whole load of these big publications. You know, I'm not sure what it's been like in the US, but I was in London recently and there were ads for the book all through the tube. So it's kind of all over the place. There's this big push to get people to buy into this notion that the book is selling and to make people believe that this is some kind of positive vision for the future. And so, you know, I wanted to have you on because Certainly, we talked about this ideology of long-termism before, but I think that there are some more aspects of this to dig into, especially as it has gained this prominence. And so to start that discussion, there are really two topics I feel like that we're hearing a lot about and that we should probably be knowing more about. And the first of those is effective altruism, and then the other one, as I said, is long-termism. So I'm wondering to start, could you talk a bit about what these two concepts are And how they relate to one another.
0: Yeah, sure. First of all, maybe it's worth mentioning that the promotional push for McCaskill's new book, I mean, it has millions of dollars behind it. There is no shortage of funds to buy advertisements in the the London Underground or or whatever. And the movement from which long termism emerges, uh, effective altruism, itself has just an enormous uh, quantity of money that wealthy donors, tech billionaires like Sam Bankman-Fried, you know, co-founder of Facebook, for example, have been, you know, willing to just give this community. Right now, they have, you know, $46.1 billion in committed funding. And in addition, you know, there are various organizations, companies, and so on, like OpenAI, that are aligned more or less with the EA or long-termist worldview that have been independently funded by, you know, tech billionaires. So the community is just awash in money. So much money, they don't know what to do with it. Literally, they're giving out $100,000 prizes, five of them, for blogs, you know, promoting or discussing, you know, long-termist ideas or effective altruist ideas. So it's just a huge amount of money. So it's not surprising that Will McCaskill has been able to get all of this attention for his book. You know, it's not the result of merit. It's the result of money. So basically, you know, the effective altruist uh, community was sort of born in like around 2009. The first organization that was motivated by effective altruist ideas was Giving What We Can. And that was founded uh, in in 2009, in fact, by Toby Ord, who's at the University of Oxford and was sort of co-founded with Will McCaskill. And the idea behind effective altruism is sort of inspired by the global ethics of Peter Singer. You know, so famously, Peter Singer wrote this article about uh, famine and affluence. I think it was published in 1972, if I remember correctly. But basically, his argument was it shouldn't matter where in the world someone is suffering. So, you know, imagine yourself walking down the road and you see a child who is drowning in a lake and you just bought some new shoes or, you know, a new suit and so on. If you were to go save that child, you would ruin your shoes and suit. Should you do it? A lot of people would say yes. And he says, well, what's the difference between the child drowning, you know, 15 feet away from you in a lake and somebody starving on the other side of the world, like in Bangladesh uh, at the time, I believe. There really shouldn't be any, you know, fundamental kind of moral difference between these two situations. And therefore, insofar as we care about helping others, which is a sort of basic uh, definition of altruism, then we should be willing to give a considerable amount of our money, or at least a minimal amount of our money, you know, to help people around the world. And so once you have that idea, there is a further question, which is uh, actually, if, if you are convinced that you should give away some of your income to help other people, which charities should you give it to? And There have been various, you know, rankings of charities in the past, but the effective altruists said, actually, maybe there's a better way to discern which charities are are the best ones. And so they wanted to use, you know, science and evidence and reason to pick the best charities. And, you know, so so for example, one of the conclusions that they've stuck with for uh, many years now is that giving to uh, the Anti-Malarial Foundation, I, I believe it's called, which then would manufacture and distribute bed nets to prevent, uh, you know, individuals in regions of the world that are susceptible to malaria from getting malaria, from, from being bit by these little, you know, hybrid, flying hypodermic needles called mosquitoes. You get a much bigger bang for your buck than, for example, if you donate to uh, disaster relief. Uh, you know, oftentimes that money just kind of gets, gets lost or you know, if there's an autocrat in rule, you know they'll end up taking a lot of money. So so far, I mean, this sounds this sounds pretty good. If you look at the details, it turns out that there are some methodological problems, like the notion of quality-adjusted life years, uh, qualities, uh, which we could we could discuss later if, if you'd like, as well as if you take it seriously, there end up being these these rather repugnant uh, conclusions, like maybe you should actually support sweatshops. One of their main ideas is earning to give. So maybe the most good you could do is not, for example, joining a charity, uh, becoming a doctor who then you know, goes to some place in the global south that is you know, is, is somewhat impoverished and, and needs better health care. What you should do instead is go work on Wall Street. And then you can make a whole lot of money, take that money, donate it. And that ultimately, if you crunch the numbers, you could do more good that way, or even working for a petrochemical company. Will McCaskill has argued that in the past.
1: Yeah, there was an article in, in the New York Times recently asking, like, is it ethical to defend or, or work for like a major oil company or something like that? And like, they're verdict apparently was that it can be it, but what you're saying also brings to mind sam sam bankman Fried, right you know cto of ftx and his argument is that he's engaging in all this crypto stuff so he makes a lot of money that he can give to these causes to like make the world a better place
0: yeah exactly i mean he is one of the great success stories within ea of somebody who was convinced to earn to give and he thought well how you know could i maximize the amount of money I get to then, you know, donate it to supposedly the best causes out there, and so he decided then to go into cryptocurrency. You know, and he himself, as as you are very aware, has described it as more or less, you know, kind of Ponzi scheme. And you know, there's a huge carbon footprint. I know FTX is like tried to address that a little bit. I think it's it's inadequate, but you know, it's a huge carbon footprint to cryptocurrencies. There are a lot of people in the global south who get completely screwed over. It, you know, a lot of people in the global north who get, who get screwed over by cryptocurrency as well. Funnily enough, I mean, he's an individual who like embodied that EA ethos that you know, this idea of earn to give, and then ended up becoming you know, this multi billionaire crypto kingpin. <laughs> so
1: Yeah, it's very troubling to see, I guess. And, you know, just to pick up on what you're saying about the approach to this, that, you know, you make this money and you make these donations and this is how you make the world a better place. Like it really is push to promote philanthropy i feel like in this moment especially when there's a growing kind of questioning of the role of philanthropy and whether this is actually making like the kind of the positive changes in the world that we've been told over long periods of time you know questions about the gates foundation and things like this and in mccaskill's book you know this notion is promoted really heavily right you know he's very explicit that it's far better to put your money into effective nonprofits than to change your personal actions or, or things like that, right? He, you know, he says at one point, like, why are people getting rid of plastic? This makes no sense when they could be donating to effective nonprofits that would make a much bigger difference in the big scheme of things, right?
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. A critique that one could make, and, and philosophers have made, is that the whole EA kind of approach, in general. Certainly in the past has taken for granted the various systems that are in place. The idea is, you know, assuming that these systems will continue to exist and that maybe even they're good, maybe they're even beneficial, you know, capitalism has resulted in all sorts of material, you know, progress and so on. A lot of them draw from you know Stephen Pinker uh, in his book, you know, The Better Angels of Our Nature, where he argues essentially that yes, yes, kind of, <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, neoliberalism is like kind of been very much a net positive. And so ultimately you're you're trying to figure out ways as individuals within this system to maximize your impact, the positive, hopefully positive impact in the world, which then neglects the possibility that many of the most significant global problems are the result of the systems themselves. You know, so like Nathan Robinson in, in Current Affairs you know, had this really good recent critique of effective altruism where at the end, you know, he made the case that perhaps the most effective altruism there is, is socialism. You know, it's, it's just revamping in fundamental ways the system that is currently in place and is the result of sort of an underlying cause of climate change, of global injustices, the wealth disparities and so on so yeah, it's MacAskill, like for example, the idea that we should go work for petrochemical companies, work for organizations that are polluting our planet, and by virtue of that, pushing us towards this unprecedented state of global crisis in order then to use that money we make in, by working for the petrochemical companies to, to donate to charities that are trying to alleviate the suffering caused by climate change is kind of mind-boggling and a bit maddening.
1: No, I, I completely agree. And like I, I think it's really interesting that you say that, right? And and there are, are like a, a ton of things that I could pick up there. But just to mention one piece of it, and I think that we'll return to something like this a bit later in our conversation, but also how this notion of earn to give and the way that it is argued for has changed over time as they have wanted effective altruism to be open to a wider range of people. In the book, eighty thousand hours, which is this group or this movement that McCaskill's associated with, you know, he talks about it in the book. He talks about his previous book arguing for for things like this and he doesn't talk at all about going to work for a petrochemical company or a crypto company or any kind of other like terrible organization that's doing terrible things in the world. You know, his whole argument in the book that he's putting out there for the mainstream public is that you should be doing your work or or having your experiences and then you can like found organizations that promote effective altruism or the only instance that he talks about where people are working in an industry and then puts money into some organizations or whatnot is a programmer at a tech company who still does his programming job and then gives a bit of money to some effective altruist organization or something like that right so it's a real kind of they really want to downplay that and i believe in one of the articles you wrote you said that they like to say how people like to draw from these older comments where we said people should go work for petrochemical companies and stuff like that but that doesn't represent us anymore right So, so i think that's Really interesting.
0: Yeah. So initially, so I I believe McCaskill co-founded Eighty Thousand Hours, named Eighty Thousand Hours because that's the average number of hours that somebody will spend uh, throughout their career working. Um, And yeah, so as part of their marketing strategy, they initially focused uh, foregrounded this idea of earn to give. Like, okay, it's it's this counterintuitive idea, but you know, if you crunch the numbers again, sort of assuming that the system can't be changed or shouldn't be changed, then if you crunch the numbers, maybe this is a really good way to actually maximize the amount of good that you do in the world. And later on, they realized that not only was that sort of a bad strategy, because a lot of people found it absolutely abhorrent that you'd go and work on Wall Street, uh, like Matthew Wage, who was uh, one of the early effective altruists, a uh, philosopher at Princeton, who gave up his an opportunity to go to to Oxford to get his PhD in order to work on Wall Street to donate his money. So yeah, they sort of realized that actually a lot of people find this to be a really off-putting idea. So it was a mistake. And I think also perhaps they did a bit more research and realized that the earn-to-give idea is a good suggestion for a much smaller percentage of young people than they initially thought. This actually gets at one of the main Problems I have with effective altruism and its its long-termist offshoot is that very often the research has trailed behind the activism. They've been so excited to go out and you know change the world. To some extent, they failed to properly interrogate the underlying philosophical ideas that motivate their prescriptions for what people should in the world right now should actually go and do. And so, yeah, initially they said a lot of people should go and earn to give. Then they took a step back and thought a bit more about it and realized, actually, this is not such a good idea. Again, not only just for marketing reasons, but you know, maybe it's, it's not the best way for a lot of people to maximize the amount of good that they do in the world. And so you find a similar thing with long-termism, where these, these bold claims about what we ought to do right now in order to improve the long-term future of humanity that actually are just based on really flimsy, highly contentious, some would say very implausible, sort of deeper philosophical views. So yeah, maybe just a a very sort of high-level criticism that I would have of these movements is that they have jumped the gun. (laughs) They're out there trying to change the world in really significant ways without having a really robust theoretical foundation for their, their views. I mean, the, the long-termist offshoot again, that's one of the main three cause areas of effective altruism, in addition to eliminating factory farming, which I think is very good, and alleviating global poverty, which I also very much would get behind. But the community in general has kind of shifted away from those, over time, over the past five years, away from those two other cause areas and towards long-termism. And they've already you know established connections with major governing bodies or agencies like the United Nation they've you know fostered connections with tech billionaires like Elon Musk and so on as a result they're in a position to change the world in really significant very non trivial ways and yet again that theoretical foundation is just pretty weak and i think that's a big problem and it's one reason i'm trying to you know within that sort of public arena to push back on some of these ideas and to let people know that the long-termist view is much more radical and much less uh, defensible than a lot of the most vocal advocates in champions of this worldview would have you believe.
1: Yeah, I think that's put really well. And you can see it in the arguments that McCaskill makes in the book, right? Near the end, where he's saying like, how can you get involved? What can you do? It's all about how can you get involved in promoting effective altruist organizations, the movement of effective altruism, you know, how you can promote long-termism. It's not like how you can get involved in these causes that are going to make the world a better place. It's all about how do you spread long termism and effective altruism further to more and more people. And just on your point there about long-termism, maybe you can give us like a brief definition of what it is. But one of the things that stood out to me in the book as McCaskill was making this argument for long-termism that just kind of blew my mind, was he really kind of presents it as an extension of the civil rights movement. You know, you have this expansion of rights to indigenous people, to black people, to gay people, and now we are expanding rights to the unborn, the people of the future. Like, it's just kind of a wild framing to me that, you know, is presented as something that just makes like total sense. But maybe you can give us a brief idea of what long-termism is.
0: Yeah. Also, just with respect to the word unborn, there was a study i was reading about just uh, the other day i believe it was conducted by some of the the long termists and they found that the that the way you frame questions about the value of future generations depends on the wording that's unsurprising a lot of you know studies find that but if you talk about future generations the percentage of people who are moved by that drops <laughs> consistently but ultimately what they're talking about is the unborn i mean on the view that McCaskill defends in his book, and this is called The Total View, and it was named that way by uh, a philosopher, Derek Parfit, who is sort of the grandfather of the whole long-termist movement. He was the supervisor of Toby Ord. On The Total View, there is no intrinsic difference between an individual who dies and a possible person who is not born. So maybe there are other reasons why the death of somebody might be worse. You know, it might affect loved ones and so on. But if you bracket those, there is no difference between the death itself and the non-birth of some person who could possibly exist. The easiest way to understand that is that on this view, people are understood to be the containers of value. So we're we're just these vessels. We can be filled with value, which you might take to be happiness, a certain quantity of, of happiness then, or maybe even a negative quantity of happiness. And the total view says that a universe that contains more net total value or happiness is better than a universe that contains less. And if you then derive an obligation from that, as the utilitarians would do, they would say, well, then we have a moral obligation to create a universe with as much value, as much happiness as possible. One way to do that is to increase the happiness that's experienced by all the people who currently exist. But another way to do that is to create new people, i.e. value containers, that contain net positive amounts of value. So if you double your population, and if everybody has the exact same amount of value, say a happiness level of 10, you double the population, you get twice as much value. And so the universe then becomes twice as good. If you triple it, you know, it becomes three times as good, and so on and so on. So Behind it, there's this really controversial idea about the intrinsic badness of death versus non-birth. And consequently, this kind of moral duty, which may not be absolute, but there's still a kind of like moral, you know, push then to encourage people or to engage in activities that will maximize the total number of people in the future. So all of that said, maybe it's it's useful then to actually define long-termism. So it's basically just the idea there's there's a weak and a strong version. A lot of the people in the community, as far as I can tell, are most sympathetic with the strong version. Some of them, like McCaskill and Hillary Graves, have explicitly defended the strong version. The strong version is definitely what you find in Nick Beckstead, who wrote one of the founding documents of the long-termist ideology in 2013. It was his PhD dissertation, as it happens. But nonetheless, McCaskill discusses in an article that he posted on the effective altruism forum that for marketing reasons they should go with the weaker definition. So the weaker definition is just that ensuring that the long-term future of humanity goes well is a key priority. And the stronger version is that this is the key priority. So it should be, you know, it's tops the list. It's more important than than anything else. Global poverty, no. Animal welfare, no. Any kind of problem that a contemporary problem that's, you know, facing humanity that isn't going to significantly change how much value comes to exist in the very far future is just not one of our top priorities. Uh, Nick Bostrom, who is sort of the father of long-termism, has made this more explicit, said you know, for, for utilitarians, our top four priorities should be mitigating existential risk. And on this view, existential risk is basically anything that would prevent us from creating you know, astronomical amounts of value in the future. So if you dig a little deeper, what what does it mean to say that ensuring that the long run future of humanity goes well, what exactly does that mean? and the meaning is at least one way to understand it draws from the total view you know so the future will go better you know if we not just survive for a really long time, you know at least you know we have another billion years or eight hundred million years on earth before Earth becomes uninhabitable as the sun turns into a red giant, and uh, its luminosity increases, the oceans boil, and so on. <laughs> and, but if we colonize space, we could potentially increase the human population by many orders of magnitude. You know, there could be you know, 10 to the 23 biological humans in the Virgo supercluster, our, our local group of, of galaxies. And even more, if we create planet-sized computers... In which we simulate digital people. And these would be basically digital value containers, digital vessels that would realize some kind of happiness. Uh, then we could even more vastly increase the future population. And so behind the long termist view is this vision of what could be that involves you know, space colonization, the creation of computer simulations, and the, the simulation of enormous numbers of digital people all for the aim of maximizing the total amount of happiness that exists in the future, within our future light cone. That's the region of the universe that's accessible to us in principle. And there are also other reasons too. I mean, they, they might say, well, you know, there, there are great uh, works of art that will be created in the future. You know, there's ever more just societies that we could create. And, but a lot of this is just the foundation is maximization. More is better. I mean, McCaskill actually has a section in his book called Bigger is Better. We should make our civilization as big as possible.
1: The future should be big, yeah.
0: The future should be big, as big as as possible. And so this behind the very kind of, you know, approachable, even appealing sort of way that they advertise it, like future people matter, you know, we can affect them, how the longer run future of humanity unfolds matters is important, is this particular vision, which is radical and bizarre, and I think a lot of people who first like, encounter it in its details find it very off-putting, especially when they consider the fact that there are real, actual people who are suffering in the world today, and that these individuals' pain and discomfort and misery and anguish might end up getting neglected or sort of brushed to the side because what really matters on the long-termist view is how things go over the next million, billions, even trillions of years from now.
1: Yeah. And and I want to pick up on that more in just a second. And I would say if people want to know more about long-termism, they can, of course, go back to the last episode we did back in May, where we discussed this in in much greater depth, right? But, you know, you were talking there about the value, right? And, and how people are seen as value containers and that value is associated with happiness or well-being in McCaskill's book. And the thing that I really took away from it when I was reading the argument that McCaskill was making was very much like, look, there can be a ton of people today and they are very happy or we can have like way more people in the future and maybe they're not all as happy, but as long as they're like slightly above the threshold for, you know, having a positive life and not being neutral or whatever, then this is, you know, in the long run, a better outcome. And then what that communicates to me, even though it's not like explicit in the text of the book, is that why would you significantly increase the life expectations of people today if that would take away from being able to realize all these other people in the future when you have limited resources and, you know, especially as us people who are interested in philanthropy and giving money to particular causes, like, okay, we should get people up to a level where they are marginally happy or, or fulfilled or, or what have you. Um, and that is, of course, based on subjective interpretations of what happiness is, not, you know, a, a kind of... Um, objective taker, we want to raise people to this much income or or what have you. But as long as people feel in their lives that they are slightly happy, even if they are very poor and, and live in kind of abject conditions, then this is acceptable. And we shouldn't want to significantly raise them up because we need to think about where we're putting our resources. And if we are putting all of our money into, you know, raising the global south to the incomes of the global north or something or the living standards of the global north, then that takes away a lot of our resources that we could be putting into you know, ensuring that we have this great long-term future that is gonna be fantastic and we lock in the values that ensure that happens and blah, 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 right? Like, it, it's a very kind of troubling way to approach the future, how we think about people, how we think about society, and and just on your point about the people that he's quoting, like throughout the book, he's constantly quoting people like Nick Bostrom and Toby Ord as like inspiring this thinking or talking about extinction in in these particular ways, and like you really don't find out like the core of what these people are thinking, which is incredibly troubling, as you described in in our last episode, and just finally like when you think about this approach one thing that stood out to me was that McCaskill said his supervisor was an economist turned philosopher, right? And so this kind of base kind of economic thinking is at the core of what he's considering when he is denoting or considering the value in an individual human being. And in the same way that think of these kind of abstract notions of economic growth and how we should be promoting that and like not really thinking about the material consequences of that growth, like who would actually benefits or whatnot, because as long as this like abstract value is increasing, then that is a net positive, we assume, then it's similar with this, right? As long as the net value that we are measuring in like the total lifespan of human history is going up, then this is like a positive thing. And we don't need to drill down into what that actually means for people's lives.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it is very economic. I mean, it's 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 almost like, you know, morality is kind of a branch of quantitative economics. It sort of assumes that, for example, happiness can be quantified. You know, there are these units of well-being or welfare out there or happiness. Some have called them utils, a single unit of utility. Um, And yeah, so a lot of these individuals, I think, because they realize the importance of marketing, they are really careful about how they present their views and which parts of their views they conceal. And they don't want people to think about too much because most, like morally normal people, will find them to be really, like I said before, you know, abhorrent. Because it's so quantitative, one of the criticisms of utilitarianism, which, by the way, I mean it, 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 you, historically, utilitarianism sort of emerged around the same time that capitalism did, and I, I don't think that's uh, just a coincidence. What a surprise! And so. One of the criticisms that has been made of utilitarianism, which is very influential within this, this sort of long-termist community, in fact, an overwhelming number of effective altruists are utilitarians. Their own surveys show that. I think it's something like 80% are utilitarians. Utilitarianism is not sensitive to numbers. And so by that, I mean, imagine a universe that contained only one individual, i.e. Um, value container. And that individual realized uh, 100 units of happiness. You can imagine a second universe in which there are 100 individuals and each of them have one unit of happiness. Which universe is better? On the total view, on the, the total utilitarian perspective, they're the same. And so this gets at your point that it may be better to have an enormous number of future people who have very low kind of happiness levels than a universe that has a much smaller number of people that have really high amounts of happiness. If you crunch the numbers, you know, if you have 1 billion trillion trillion with, you know, units of (laughs) 5 amounts of happiness versus a universe that has, you know, just 10 people with 1,000 units of happiness, you know, the former is better because what matters is the total quantity. That is the bottom line. The view that the first universe is better than the second was labeled, in fact, by Derek Parfit himself as the repugnant conclusion. And he took it to be a major point against the total view. It's a big problem. Otherwise, he wouldn't have called it the repugnant conclusion. (laughs) Um, But the thing is that since then, a lot of people have tried to make the case, including many long-termists.
1: And McCaskill himself.
0: McCaskill himself, exactly. I believe in the book. The idea is that, well, okay, maybe it's not so repugnant, why would that be? Well, because one thing we know about human psychology and human cognition is that we're, you know, a professor of mine used to say we're qualitative geniuses and quantitative imbeciles. And, you know, we're really good at like qualitative things like recognizing faces, but not good at understanding, for example, the vast difference between 10 to the 20 and 10 to the 21. It's like just an an enormous number uh, difference between those, those two figures. And so perhaps it's because we're so bad at thinking about big numbers that we come to see the repugnant conclusion as repugnant. Uh, but if we were just better at, you know, cogitating these these large <laughs> figures, then we'd see that actually a universe with enormous numbers of people with low levels of well-being really is better than one with just a much smaller population of people that are very very happy. A lot of philosophers absolutely do not accept that and think that that's total nonsense or bullshit, you know, to, pardon my language. But nonetheless, I mean, they have over time become more and more open to just accepting this implication of the total view. So as a result, like you were saying before, another point you were making is that, yes, when you sort of focus on the very long-term future of humanity, millions, billions, billions trillions of years in the future, a lot of our sort of contemporary problems. Do end up sort of shrinking to almost just points, just almost invisible specks, you know, on the the cosmic timeline, and that is deeply problematic. And, and part of that arises from this idea of people as just containers of value. So if somebody can exist in the future with a net positive amount of value, then they should exist. We again, we have this on the utilitarian view, we have this moral obligation then to bring them into existence in order to maximize the total amount of value in in the universe. You know, they like to use expected value as a way of determining which actions we should take. In other words, like for example, which charitable causes we should prioritize. And as soon as you include these merely possible people that might exist millions and billions and trillions of years from now, perhaps in these vast computer simulations that are just spread all throughout the, the universe, crowded with digital people that for some reason are happy. I don't really know why. But as soon as you include them in the expected value calculations, then the long-term future wins every time. <laughs> you know. So Nick Bostrom, for example, has calculated that there could be 10 to the 58 digital people in the universe in the future. That's just a really, really enormous, absolutely incomprehensible number. When you compare that number to, for example, the Mere 1.3 billion people who are in multidimensional poverty today. The question then of, well, which action should you take? Should you help to lift these people out of multidimensional poverty? Or should you try to focus on ensuring that 10 to the 58 people come into existence in the far future? Well, (laughs) the second option, the far future option, absolutely wins by an enormous margin. So there's just no question. Uh, you know, Bostrom himself has said if you were to decrease the probability of an existential risk, which again is any event that would prevent us from creating all of this future value by ensuring these digital people come into existence. If you were to reduce the probability of an existential risk by just a really, really tiny percentage point, you know, 0.000000 and so on, 1%, that is the is morally equivalent to saving the lives of billions and billions and billions of actual human beings. So on this framework, if you found yourself in front of two buttons and there was a forced choice situation, you can choose one of these two buttons. Do you push it to increase the probability that these 10 to the 58 people come into existence in the far future by a tiny amount, or do you save, you know, billions of people or you know, help to lift uh, 1.3 billion out of multidimensional poverty, and so on. The Bostromian is going to push the first button uh, every time. I mean, there's just no question about it.
1: I think it's really interesting that you say that, because when you think about McCaskill's book as well, one of the things that is interestingly absent is this discussion of like the digital people in the far future, right? He'll talk about how people themselves, there can be a ton of them in the far future, but there's not so much mention of like the digital beings, right? Even though at one point in the book, he says that if we would all die, but we had invented artificial general intelligence— Then civilization will still continue as long as those computers continue to operate, right? So all of us like fleshy human beings can die, but civilization will continue because we've created these digital beings. So like the hints of it are in there, but he won't actually dig into it in the way that they will in some of these other writings that are not presented for the mainstream audience, right? And in one of the articles he wrote, you noted that he even said that in a Reddit Q&A or what have you, that this is still something that he was interested in. He just didn't have Room for it apparently in this book. So, this is another piece that I wanted to talk to you about, and certainly feel free to pick up on the digital being thing. But there's been a real campaign to sell long termism to the general public, and this book is very much part of this campaign or, or like a spearhead for it, right? In trying to present these ideas in a way that can appeal to a more mainstream audience, to a more general audience, so that you even have people like Bill McKibben or like the actor. Jesus, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who is giving positive blurbs to this book. Rucker Bregman as well. He called me out for being critical of long-termism because he was like, this book is great, which is very worrying to me. But these people who many people would otherwise think are real trustworthy on particular issues. I don't know about Gordon-Levitt, but at least Bill McKibben and, and Rucker Bregman are people that, you know, I think people generally feel are trustworthy individuals who have you know, some good ideas are then kind of providing positive blurbs for a book like this. And then as you're saying, you know, there's this big marketing campaign being built around it in order to say, you know, this is a real thing that we should be thinking about. This is concerning and this should be a mainstream cause that people get concerned about, that people adopt, that people get invested in. How does this process of selling long-termism to the public take place and how effective do you think it's been?
0: Yeah, good, good questions. With respect to Bill McKibben blurbing the book, the long-termist and existential risk frameworks, they really have roots in transhumanism. And McKibben has been, to some extent, a vociferous critic of transhumanism. So it's it's really perplexing that he actually blurred the book. And I spoke to a number of people, including people in the community, who themselves are somewhat quietly critical of long-termism. And pretty much everybody was just utterly bewildered by the fact that you know a lot of people said oh he, he must not have actually read the book. Which happens, yeah. Yeah, which happens, of course of course, yeah. I think anybody who's written a book has, has experienced something like that, where somebody just says, Oh, why don't you write it and I'll put my name to it. Yeah. <laughs> which yeah. Is, is really bizarre, but that's just the way it happens sometimes. So yeah, I mean the rollout of the book, you know, there was a lot of anticipation, a lot of planning that went into Uh, ensuring that this reaches the maximum number of people. I'd mentioned earlier, I mean, there are millions of dollars. I've been told that there's, you know, something like a $10 million budget just to promote this book. And the PR firm that McCaskill's hired, you know, gets something like $12,000 every month. So, yeah, they they, they really wanted to, you know, I think saw this as the moment to go out and evangelize for the long-termist worldview. And in fact, my, my guess is that there probably was a vote, more or less, at some of the institutions you know, based around Oxford that are the hubs, you know, the epicenters of the long-termist view. They probably took a vote and picked McCaskill uh, you know, because he's, I think, you know, Zoe Creamer recently described him as, I don't know, just the most approachable the straight guy, I think, is the word she, she used. You know, sort of the, just the, the normal guy who's who's you know affable and isn't too peculiar like some of the other figures, like Eliezer Gadkowski is like frequently mentioned as, as, as a moral weirdo and, and so on. And the reason I think that is because I know that when Toby Ord wrote his book on existential risk, so McCaskill's writing about long-termism. Ord, in 2020, published a book on existential risk, which are just sort of companion books. I mean, they're meant to dovetail each other. The reason Toby Ord wrote it was because people at the Future Man Institute took a vote. And they decided that, well, you know, he has a wife and kids, so he looks nice and wholesome. You know, he got his degree from Oxford. It's a prestigious institution. So that's really good. From one perspective, it looks very kind of slimy. And, you know, I mean, that's the nature of marketing. It's It's a bit slimy. It's all about manipulation. And so anyways, yeah, I suspect that they took a vote on McCaskill and then made sure that he had a lot more money than Toby Ord had. Toby Ord had, I think, a total of something about 38000 to promote his book. Will McCaskill has something like $10 million. And yeah, I think so far, I mean, they've had a lot of successes. Uh, as you, you sort of gestured at early on, I mean, there were articles either by or about McCaskill in New York Times, New Yorker, BBC, The Guardian. And a lot of these articles were really quite Positive. New Yorker was a bit mixed. They did actually talk about some of the people who have concerns about long-termism, such as Zoe Creamer, who I just mentioned. So I, I think that it's so far, um, it's been fairly successful, at least getting the word out. And my whole take on this is that the underlying ideas, like the total view, I mean, that's sort of widely seen as deeply problematic by a lot of professional philosophers. But nonetheless, it's a legitimate idea on the marketplace of ideas. And it's something that I personally would be willing to engage with and to critique within the confines, within the the milieu of academia, sort of just debating ideas and so on. But as I mentioned earlier, the activism oftentimes has come before the the research and sort of outstripped the, the research. And, you know, my Main push right now is to try to meet them in the public square and to do what I can to at least inform people of just how radical <laughs> this worldview is and just how potentially dangerous it could be as well. And in doing that, to perhaps undermine to some extent their efforts to evangelize, to convert people. Convert is a word that some long-termists themselves have used <laughs> to convert as many people to the long term as religion, I would say, uh, as possible.
1: You know, there's a big focus within the book as well with McCaskill kind of saying, like, we need value lock-in so that people have these values for the long term. And he makes an explicit connection to religions and the fact that as religions took over and grew, they inculcated these values in people that we still see, you know, hundreds or a thousand years down the road, right? So that comparison is quite explicitly made within the text of his book.
0: Yes, there are a lot of parallels, troubling parallels between long-termism and religion. And I mean, I could talk about that for 10 minutes. I mean, there are so many. But yes, it's very disconcerting. Um, You know, I I think along these lines, exactly, they see the upcoming uh, 2023 Summit for the Future, hosted by the United Nations, as potentially another key opportunity to really mainstream these ideas. I mean, McCaskill has been explicit about that in a podcast interview with the UN Dispatch, which, in fact, the introduction to that podcast, a little a short little article, mentions that long-termism is really being embraced to a significant extent by the foreign policy community and, indeed, the United Nations itself. There is a lot of success so far. In fact, I mean, in terms of lock-in, I mean, you could sort of use that idea against the long-termist view itself and say, maybe the, the summit for the future might mainstream these ideas. It perhaps might even take some of the, the underlying long-termist values and codify them in some kind of you know, official document. And as a result, those values, those long-termist values might be locked in you know, for a, a very long time. And therefore, for critics like me, there's a certain urgency to, to getting out there right now. Sounding the alarm, saying actually these ideas are potentially really dangerous, or would have implications that would would exacerbate the plight of the poorest and most disadvantaged individuals in the world today. Right now, before the long long termism gets locked into some UN you know document, and furthermore, just going back to an, another point you made, McCaskill did say in a Reddit Ask Me Anything that the reason he didn't mention digital people and the possibility, which is brought up by the person who asked the question. That there could be enormous numbers of digital people in the future, and, and that this ensuring that this actually comes to pass is very important, is because he ran out of space. But my own guess is he probably understood there probably were conversations behind the scenes that you know if long termism becomes linked too tightly with this particular normative futurology, you know that we should go out and create all these digital people, that that might actually be really bad for long termism. I mean, in the same way that effective altruism got. You know, its reputation was damaged by being too tightly coupled with the idea of earn-to-give. Long-termism's reputation might be damaged by being too closely associated with, you know, the notion of digital people. He sort of goes out of his way, I suspect, to not mention them too much. But ultimately, if you just dig into the papers that they are writing within the community, oftentimes for others who already have subscribed to the long-termist view... This notion of digital people in the far future and you know, the possibility that they're 10 to the 45 in the Milky Way, that's one calculation that McCaskill himself has used in papers, or 10 to the 58, Bostrom's calculation. I mean, this, this is just very central to this whole picture of what the future ought to look like. It's very worrisome that long-termism has become so influential in the world today and seems to have a certain kind of momentum towards becoming even more uh, influential in the future. And there is a kind of time sensitivity to critiquing these views because, yeah, I mean, once, you know, tech billionaires have really fully embodied them and the UN has published documents that encapsulate these ideas, then it may become just really difficult to alter the trajectory of the future of humanity
1: which is exactly what they want, you know? Like, I, I guess to try to start to wrap up our conversation, like, you know, obviously I've been reading your work, I've been paying attention to how these things have been developing for the past number of months, but like really reading McCaskill's book, seeing what he writes in there, but also knowing the sorts of things that he doesn't talk about, right, that he leaves out of it, it really does feel to me like a kind of technocratic wet dream, right? This, this idea that you're not only trying to shape the present and what's going on now, you're not only trying to plan what's going on in society at this moment, but you're literally trying to, as he says in the book, lock in these values that will shape the future not just for thousands of years, but for millions of years to come. And these are the values not of the collective public, right? These are not values of compassion and, you know, needing to look after like the least well-off among us, you know, the, the poorest people trying to help them, but rather these values that we need to ensure that the maximum number of people with the most value exist in the future. These are the values of people who are very disconnected from those real struggles that people face around the world today. You know, values that are held by rather well-paid people at these particular institutes at universities like Oxford, but also the tech industry that very much agrees with, you know, higher up people in the tech industry who very much agree with this Outlook, you know, people like Elon Musk, people like Peter Thiel, who are very much associated with these movements. And so it seems particularly troubling and really kind of like a red flag, something that we really should be paying attention to that these people are trying to push this particular set of values on us and are trying to lock that in as society's values and how we think about problems and how we distribute resources for many years to come.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so a lot of these individuals think that we're on the cusp of creating artificial general intelligence. And many of them also accept this argument that was most extensively delineated in Nick Bostrom's 2014 book, Superintelligence, which is that as soon as we get artificial general intelligence to human level AI, then we will very quickly get artificial superintelligence. Because any sufficiently intelligent cognitive system, whether it's biological in nature or artificial, is going to realize that one way to better achieve whatever goals it has or has been programmed to have, being smarter is going to be useful. So consequently, as soon as you get AGI, that system is going to realize, well, if I'm smarter, then I can do whatever I'm supposed to do much better. So it will have then an incentive to try to to modify its source code in order to increase its its cognitive abilities, problem-solving abilities, essentially. And so then... The whole reason I mentioned that is once you get ASI, artificial superintelligence, the future may be completely out of our control. There may be no way to influence its decisions and its behaviors once it exists. And exactly the now hackneyed analogy is, well, the future of the gorilla sort of depends on human actions. And you know, we're just sort of superior than it in terms of our you know, intellectual or problem-solving abilities. And there's just no way that it can control what we do. So there might be the same kind of dynamic that ends up occurring between us and this superintelligence. So as a result, it's really important that we load in certain values to the AGI or the ASI early on, because those values, if we're the only intelligent creatures in the universe, those values might not just shape the future millions and billions of years from now, but the entire future of the cosmos within our light cone, the accessible region, The entire future will depend on what values we encode into it. So it's really important that the values we select are ones that will ensure the realization of our vast and glorious, as Toby Ord puts it, long-term potential. And what does that mean? What's our potential? Well, at least one big part of it has to do with what we were talking about earlier, what you just uh, hinted at, which is maximizing the total amount of value or happiness in in the universe. So this is part of their vision that we're just... AGI, artificial general intelligence, is right around the corner. And it's crucial that long-termists play a part in shaping the first AGI systems. Because you know, then that will ensure that the long-termist ideology ends up determining the way the entire future of the, the cosmos ends up looking like. I mean, again, maybe this gets back at the this, this sort of religious parallels, because it's a very apocalyptic kind of view. The end is near, you know, some fundamental rupture in human history, some fundamental transformation. In fact, they call it transformative AI is right around the corner. You know, we live in this time of perils is another term they use where, you know, existential risk is particularly high. And once we get uh, artificial superintelligence, then the, the risk will significantly decrease. We'll be safe from, you know, extinction or whatever. It's a very worrisome situation. And I think many of these individuals are motivated to create AGI for this reason that, you know, if AGI doesn't destroy us, then it's going to usher in a techno-utopian world. And that's reason then to not just ensure that we understand the potential risks of, of uh, artificial superintelligence, but that we create it maybe sooner rather than later.
1: I think that's really well put. And I think that the comparison to, you know, the kind of apocalyptic doomsayers is, is really important as well, right? And And really draws out some of what the thinking is there. And I would also say, Talking about the artificial general intelligence or artificial superintelligence really shows the connections there to the tech industry as well and the influences of the kind of ideas that come out of some of the particularly uh, worrying tech circles. I, I think it's fair to say. But you know, our conversation has gone on for a while. We certainly could have talked about far more because uh, there's so much to dig into on this topic. There's so much worrying shit both in the book and and beyond the book that we could talk about. But I want to end with this question. You know, you said. How they are really making a big push right now in order to try to get these ideas accepted by the mainstream, right? Try to get them better accepted by a more general public, by, by people beyond their circles, to get them to believe that long-termism is something that we should be pursuing and, and dedicating resources to. We've just gone through a period where the tech industry tried to sell us Web3, right? And and these kind of ideas of, of crypto and that this was going to take over. And there was a pretty significant backlash to those ideas and to those plans, right? And I think that many people would acknowledge that that backlash did help to restrict the ability of those companies and those ideas to really expand in the way that they wanted to. Certainly there were other factors as well now, as we see higher interest rates and these projects collapsing and and a whole load of other things, right? But I wonder, what do you think about our chances to actually stop this, right? To actually push back the tide of long-termism that these people are trying to sell us?
0: I think it's a formidable challenge. It's going to be really difficult because they already have, as I mentioned before, infiltrated major governing bodies like the UN. There are people in the UK government who are listening to, you know individuals like Toby Ord, and so on. I mean, there, there are many other examples. So it's going to be very difficult. They've already sort of established a kind of infrastructure in the world that is the foundation of powerful institutions. And the tentacles of influence have reached around much of the globe already. Now is their appeal to, the average individual, the the general public. But I don't think the situation is hopeless. I do think it's possible that if enough people understand that long-termism could be dangerous, that it's built on faulty philosophical foundations, or at least dubious philosophical foundations, and that it's if it's taken seriously by individuals in power, it will end up minimizing a lot of the harms being caused to, for example, to people in the Global South, which is a result of climate change, there could be a kind of, you know, maybe sufficiently large pushback from the general public against this idea. And that may ultimately vitiate its kind of impact on the world. So, for example, a colleague of mine who works in the community, so I won't mention his or her name, but, uh, you know, it was talking to them about the impact of McCaskill's book and their view was that this is is either going to result in long-termism becoming widely accepted, as McCaskill hopes, or it could really be, it could completely backfire. And it result in all sorts of backlash against the long-termist worldview that really defangs it, you know, and really kind of robs it of a lot of its the the momentum that it, it currently has. So My hope certainly is that people will understand that long-termism is not the same as long-term thinking and that we absolutely need more long-term thinking in the world today. But long-termism goes so far beyond long-term thinking in adopting all of these bizarre views about the importance of creating 10 to the 58 digital people in the future. This is not the right worldview at the moment. I mean, you know, our societies are shaped by short-term thinking and myopic perspective on the future. Quarterly reports, you know, four-year election cycles, and so on. So we desperately need more long-term thinking, but long-termism just swings that pendulum so far to the other side and, and it casts our eyes on the future millions, billions, you know, trillions of years from now. So it's really, it's not the antidote to short-termism that's ubiquitous in our society today. Yeah, so I do think that there's hope. And the key is not even to present arguments for why long-termism is flawed. It's simply to reveal the underlying ideas that long-termists don't want you to see. Because the again, the average, you know, morally normal person will look at those underlying ideas and say, that's too bizarre. I can't accept that. That's you know, my mission right now. And my hope is that people will, yes, be properly informed about what long-term is really is all about.
1: No, I think that's really well put. And, you know, hopefully this episode will help to inform some more people about what is wrong with these ideas, you know, the crazy ideas that are associated with long-termism. We didn't even get to all the stuff around increasing the population, having more kids that's very closely aligned with what Elon Musk has been talking about as he continues to reveal new children that he's had. Emil, it's, it's great to speak again. Thanks so much for taking the time. And of course, I'll link to a bunch of the stuff that you've noted in the show notes as well. Thanks so much.
0: Great. Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure.
1: Emil Torres is a PhD candidate at Leibniz University and the author of the forthcoming book, Human Extinction, A History of the Science and Ethics of Annihilation. You can also follow Emil on Twitter at, at XRiskology. You can follow me at, at Paris Marks, and you can follow the show at, at Tech Won't Save Us. Tech Won't Save Us is produced by Eric Wickham and is part of the Harbinger Media Network. And if you want to support the work that goes into making the show every week, you can go to patreon.com slash techwon't save us and become a supporter. Thanks for listening.